together. Let's stand if we can for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number 23. We're going to read down through verse number 30. And we'll be looking at a broader passage than this tonight. But verse 23 says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And that idea of sleep there is that these are saved people, but they're violating uh, they're violating the, this ordinance in such a way that God takes them on home. To glory, And so we'll look at that in greater detail in just a moment. The title of the message this evening is quite simple, Understanding the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. God, help us as we dive into this passage. Give us uh, a strong mind. Lord, I know many in here are, are tired and weary, uh, still recovering from a long week, and folks are even running around uh, this afternoon trying to get things ready for tomorrow with work and uh, loose ends tied up and then uh, trying to get back for church tonight and and God, we can come in uh, frazzled and rattled a little bit and, uh, Lord, frayed. And so tonight, may you give us the strength we need uh, to, to stay focused on the message. Lord, give me the enthusiasm I need, but Lord, help me not to lean on uh, some uh, just some uh, spirit of enthusiasm. Holy Spirit of God, we need you to move and work here tonight. Show us truth. Lord, correct error in our heart with truth, and Lord, help us to walk in, in truth because we know uh, that it will, uh, it will make us free indeed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, the uh, word Baptist, is it, it, many don't know this, but it is an acrostic, and there are se- seven letters in the word Baptist, and those seven letters represent seven distinctives uh, that separate us out and make us uh, who we are. One of the... T's, there's two T's in the word Baptist. One of the two T's uh, stands for two ordinances. Two ordinances. Uh, at our church, we believe Scripture teaches that the church is to perform two ordinances. One of those is baptism, and the other one is the Lord's Supper. And both of them carry with them the idea of being simply pictures, memorials of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The Lord's Supper is uh, is a is an ordinance. It is it is a time where we come together to memorialize what Jesus Christ did when he suffered on the cross and his body was torn and his blood was shed. Uh, we stay away from the term sacraments. Sacraments is a Catholic term and fits in line with Catholic doctrine on the Lord's Supper. And uh, let me just try to help you try to understand the nuance of this. I believe it goes far beyond nuance, but let me help you understand uh, some of, uh, of, of the uh, where the different emphasis is put and, and how these are taught different. We are not here to worship a piece of bread. We're not here to worship a cup of wine. 
Alright? That would be, that would be turning the Lord's Supper into a sacrament because now it's become more about the bread and the juice or the the grape juice or the, the wine than it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not here to make much out of bread and wine. We are here to make much out of Jesus whom these elements represent. Uh, We come to this table to embrace the gravity of the moment that our Jesus became our sin so that we could become His righteousness. And we celebrate His great sacrifice on the cross and we do so in part through these elements representing His great sacrifice for us. The emphasis is not to be on the elements. It's to be on the Jesus behind the elements. I want you to imagine that I have had uh, here in the pulpit, and I don't, so don't rush me, but I want you to imagine that I had a bag in here with a million dollars of cash in it. I have a bag in the pulpit, let's just pretend with a million dollars. There's no bag, you can check after the service, I promise. I've never had a million dollars in my life, amen? But let's say there was a bag and there was a million dollars in it. Would you be more enamored? Let's say I took that bag out and I brought it down here and I, to this table and I dumped the million dollars on the table and it's piled up, it's falling all over the place and I lay the bag off to the side. Would you come up and would you be more excited about the bag or the cash on the table? We all know we'd be more excited about the stacks of Benjamins falling everywhere, than we would about the bag. And you have to understand that with the Lord's Supper, uh, while these elements are important, these elements hold to and represent the Lord Jesus Christ. They are an arrow that points back to the cross where Jesus died. We're not to worship the arrow. We're to worship the Jesus that the arrow points to. Some folks are enamored with the bag. and uh, They want to talk about the bag. And they want to pick up the bag and look at it and turn it inside out and study it and run around with the bag. And my friend, it's not about the bag. It's about what was inside the bag. It's not about the Lord's Supper elements as much as it is the Jesus whom they memorialize and they represent. Now, Catholic dogma uh, puts the emphasis on the elements while Scripture puts the uh, emphasis on the Christ represented by the elements. This is not something that is done for salvation. This is something that is done because of salvation. You see the difference? When Jesus died on the cross, His last three words were, It is finished. It is finished. Now, if you believe that the bread becomes the body of Christ as you put it in your mouth and uh, the, the wine or unfermented grape juice becomes the blood of Christ as it's running down your, your throat, uh, what you're saying is that the work of Christ was not complete on the cross. It is still being completed within me. Uh, that would make Jesus a liar when he said, it is finished. No, it is finished. The, 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 the sacrifice is complete. It is done. It is not an ongoing work. The work was done on the cross. And when we memorialize this, we're celebrating what was done, not something that is an ongoing, uh, active uh, event in our life. We do this not for salvation. We do this because of salvation. God gave us these element, elements to commemorate and celebrate and memorialize what Christ did. The Lord's Supper table elements are, like I said a moment ago, a giant arrow pointing back to the finished work of the cross, just like, watch this now, 
in the Old Testament, the five sacrifices laid out in Leviticus were arrows pointing toward the cross. A little uh, two, two, uh, the speakers are buzzing on me, Brother Joe. You can just dial those back a little bit. We're trying to get these dialed in. I, I appreciate your patience with us on that. Um, there is a big misunderstanding by many people that somehow uh, the, the, the Old Testament um, sacrifices were necessary for their salvation. Listen in tonight. They did not need to perform a single sacrifice to be saved. Those sacrifices represented what they had done to get saved. Now, this is a little technical. You have to listen on purpose right here, okay? In the Old Testament, they looked to God to send a Messiah. They looked to God for a Messiah. In the New Testament, we look to the Messiah to get to God. You with me? The Messiah has been laid out. We now know who He was. Uh, listen, the one element for those that were on this side of the cross, and now that we're on this side of the cross, is these people put faith in God to send the Messiah. We're on this side of the cross, and we now look at the Messiah in order to make peace with God. But both sides of the cross require faith. Both sides required faith. By faith we are saved through faith. Uh, rather, uh, by grace we're saved through faith. And Hebrews uh, goes on a long list of helping us understand that it was, it was indeed uh, a faith that uh, was the, the saving element in the Old Testament. It is faith today that saves in the New Testament. It is not by works. It is by faith. Now, Satan is busy playing the same old games now that he played in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, he got the Jews to hyper-focus in on the arrows pointing toward the cross. And he got them focusing on the sacrifices and the tabernacle and then the temple and the priests and, uh, uh, and all of uh, the, and the law and all of the uh, Old Testament uh, uh, rituals and ceremonialism and formalism. All of these things were beautiful, but there were arrows that pointed to the fact that a Messiah would one day come and die for the sins of the world. And then you get to uh, the birth of Jesus and he's, he, he, he comes along and He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross for the sins of the world. And the Jews completely miss who Jesus is because they're worshiping the arrows instead of worshiping who the arrow pointed at. Now we get to the New Testament and we get to the church era in which we live in today and many people want to take the bread and the juice and they want to worship these arrows that do nothing but point back to the cross of Jesus Christ. And my friend, we're not here tonight to worship uh, broken bread. We're not here tonight to worship wine. We're here tonight to worship the Christ in whom they represent. We're here to put the emphasis on Christ. The church of Corinth was misinformed. The church of Corinth was poorly behaved when it came to the seriousness and symbolism of the Lord's Supper. They took the precedent established by Jesus Christ Himself in the upper room and they turned it into a drunken feast, a drunken party. Many Many Christians today are guilty of a careless attitude toward this important ordinance and they fail to understand what it is and why it is that we do this. And so uh, let's set aside 
any preconceived idea we had on the Lord's Supper tonight. And let's look at the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians here, and let's see exactly uh, what it is the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper as we look at this truth, understanding the Lord's Supper. Amen? Are the, are the, are the speakers on in the auditorium? Can you hear me through the speakers? I'm preaching extra loud. I don't know if you're hearing me or the speakers. Okay, amen. I'm flying blind up here. We're going to roll with it. For my six-year anniversary, they shut the speakers off, amen? And so it's all good. All right, number one, number one, let's notice the, the church's rebuke. The church's rebuke. As you may well know, the church of Corinth was quite dysfunctional. Quite dysfunctional. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians is... Six theses put into one book. These, six, these are six rebukes. There were six areas where the church of Corinth was just getting it very wrong. And Paul writes six separate rebukes in the form of a thesis, and they all come together as a singular book. And he's, he's telling them, you are doing church wrong. And one of the areas they were getting very wrong was this idea of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, the way uh, they were handling the Lord's Supper was shameful. And Paul was going to take the time in this book both to correct their wrongdoing and teach them how to do it the right way. While I don't believe that corporately our church is in gross error like the church of Corinth, I do believe that individually any one of us can be guilty of Paul's rebukes Offered here in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look at three rebukes Paul offers the church of Corinth. Notice letter A. Some of you, Paul says, are careless. Some of you are careless. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and look at verse number 20. He says, When ye came together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Verse 22, what? What are you doing, Paul's saying, right? What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? And shame them that have not. Uh, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Paul says, you all are careless and flippant when you come in for the Lord's Supper. Instead of coming in in a worshipful uh, a tone and a somber, serious tone. You're showing up as though it's some sort of large feast and celebration and uh, you're having a huge meal and, and you're coming in hungry and you're wanting to eat to a, a point of gluttony. And, and this is not so much about honoring the Lord as it is filling your belly. Now, what Paul isn't saying here is that it's a sin to have a meal at church. We have meals at church here on a regular basis. He's not saying it's a sin to eat a meal at church, but what he is saying is that it's a sin to come to the time of the Lord's Supper uh, with an empty stomach with the hope of having some big meal. He says, no, you eat your meal at home. You come to this table, the Lord's Supper table, not hungry. You're not coming here for the purpose of eating. You're coming here uh, for the purpose of remembering the Lord's great sacrifice. Look down at verse 34. Look down at verse 34. He says, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, uh, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. So uh, let's look back at the Lord's Supper there in the upper room uh, when he 
uh, when he broke bread with his disciples there uh, right before he went to uh, the garden and was arrested and then tried and killed. Imagine with me that you're there uh, with the disciples. They're probably sitting on some sort of blanket on the floor with the low table. That would have been the custom. And, and uh, uh, Jesus there has his disciples around him in some format. And, and they're eating and they're fellowshipping. But they can sense that Jesus is, is tense. And uh, the mood in the room is tense. He has said, one of you will betray me. And then a conversation breaks out about who's going to betray Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to dip the bread bread and sop and give it to the one that's going to betray me. They give it to Judas and, and they, they just can't see it ever being Judas. And, and the, the, the mood in the room is tense. And Jesus, after they had eaten, stood up and in a very somber and serious manner, he said, this bread is the New Testament. Uh, it, it, this bread is my body, uh, which will be broken for you. And this blood is the New Testament in my blood that will be shed. This cup is the New Testament, my blood that will be shed. And he passes these around and they partake. The purpose of Jesus there was not to have some kind of big party and big feast where they could eat all they wanted and celebrate and have a good time. No, the tone was serious and somber. And, and Paul says to the church of Corinth, you're coming into this time careless, careless. Now, I don't believe that anyone comes in here uh, in a mode of being hungry, hoping that they're going to have some big feast at the Lord's Supper table. I don't believe we have the exact same problem here. But if we're not careful, we can be careless toward this time. If we're not careful, we come in here and we haven't properly gotten our heart right. We've not taken time to get alone and spend time with the Lord. We come in and we're in the flesh because we had a, a fight with a spouse or an argument uh, uh, with someone uh, in the morning at church. And uh, we come in upset with our parents. And uh, we've got a frustration or an irritation. And we come in and instead of doing uh, proper due diligence to make sure our hearts are in order, we just come in and we're careless. We're careless. I've seen children who take the Lord's Supper at three and four and five years old, and these are children who aren't even saved. And we fail to understand the seriousness of the matter. And uh, we, we fail to understand uh, how that this is a somber time, that only those who truly understand what's going on with it should be partaking. May we not be careless uh, with this. Paul says to them, you're having a big drunken party. You're coming hungry. You're overeating uh, in gluttony, and you're calling it the Lord's Supper. He rebukes them. Some of you, he says, are careless. Letter B, notice, he says, some some of you are contaminated. Some of you are contaminated. Look down at verse number 27 of our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread. And drink of that cup. Verse 29 offers a stern warning. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is a serious warning. I sure don't want to eat or drink unworthily. So, how does one make himself worthy? Well, let me share with you what I believe to be uh, what 
would be required of God for you to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. And I hope to use Scripture, I plan to use Scripture to show you these things. Uh, these won't be up on the screen. You can feel free to, to jot these down if you are capable of hearing what I'm saying and writing quick enough. Uh, this person, first qualification, this person must be a true believer in Jesus the Christ. This person must be a true believer in Jesus the Christ. Take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 28. Hebrews 10. Let's look at a few verses tonight. And this portion of the sermon is going to be a little bit more of a Bible study. I'm going to, we're going to do some Bible study time and some preaching time. This is more of the Bible study side. Hebrews 10. Look at verse 28. Please get your Bibles out. Please turn to the passages with me. Uh, please, please work with us on that. Hebrews 10. Look at verse number 28. Let's read 28 and 29. The Bible says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. You, you come to church... And you hear the word of God taught, you understand that the only way to heaven is through Jesus, who declared himself to be the way, the truth, the life, the door to heaven. No man cometh unto the Father, Jesus said, but by me. You understand that he hung on an old rugged cross and in gory fashion poured out his blood for the remission forgiveness, dismissal of your sin. You understand that you must by faith come to Him and believe in Him alone to save you. And instead of doing that, while understanding in your head, you choose not to believe in your heart. And then you sit in a church pew and you drink down the unfermented, unfermented wine. You've taken that bread. You are trampling under feet the blood of Christ. You are making a mockery of that. You're contaminated. What is the largest qualifier for you to partake of the elements? It is that you must believe that you are a sinner condemned to die. And without faith alone in Christ to save you, you'll go to hell. And that at some point in your life... You put your faith in Christ alone, and He forgave your sins. Listen up, listen up. If you've not done that, don't you dare touch these elements. Don't you dare put that grape juice in your mouth. It may just be a symbolic of the blood of Christ, but God takes that symbolism very serious. Don't you put that grape juice and that, uh, that wafer in your mouth without having truly believed in Christ alone. You are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. You are taking advantage. You are doing despite of the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, uh, 28 and 29. And so, uh, if you're going to be worthy, you must be a true believer in Jesus the Christ. Here's another qualifier. Turn over to Psalm 66 and verse 18. Psalm 66 and verse 18. Uh, here's the second qualifier. This person must have their sin confessed before God. This person must have their sin confessed before God. Now, while you're turning there, the day that you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, 
the day that you believe in Jesus alone to be your Savior, your eternal sin debt is canceled. All right? Uh, it's buried in the deepest sea. It's thrown behind the back of the Lord. Uh, he forgets uh, your sin. He remembers your sin debt no more. Now watch this. We have an eternal sin debt and we have an, uh, we have an earthly sin debt. Our eternal sin debt is canceled and you are adopted into the family of God. Nothing can change that. That is irreversible, just as adoption of a child is irreversible. You adopt the child and make him your own. That child is legally yours. And in many cultures, once you do that, that is a process that cannot be reversed. And when you are adopted into the family of God, uh, you may abandon God. God's never going to abandon you. You may give up on God. God is never going to give up on you because His love for us is infinite and His forgiveness of us is infinite, but watch this, we can still sin against our Heavenly Father. And those sins can create aught between us and our Father in Heaven. If Matthew uh, were to uh, commit uh, a series of rebellious sins against me, there's nothing Matthew could do where I would disown him and say he's not my child, no matter what it is. Matthew could someday land on death row. Matthew is going to be my son until the day he dies. Because I love him, I will, he will forever be my son. Regardless of his behavior, he belongs to me, and I own that. I own that. How much greater is our Father in heaven? No matter what we do to him, he's never going to dismiss us. He's never going to disown us. But watch this. If Matthew goes on a rebellious tirade, we're going to have some problems. And those problems are going to need to be fixed. And he's going to be punished. And, and the relationship between me and him is going to suffer. Watch this. Uh, when it comes to uh, your relationship with, with God after you get saved, watch this now. Sonship or daughtership with God can never, never be broken. But fellowship with God can be broken. Fellowship can be broken. 1 John 1.9 was not written to the, to the lost. 1 John 1.9 was written to those who are the children of God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You understand that that verse is there. Every single time that we break the heart of God by sinning as His children, we go and confess and immediately, instantaneously, He forgives us. Look at Psalm 66 and verse 18. David, who is a child of God, a saved man, said, If I regard iniquity in my heart... The Lord will not hear me. Now, if, you, if God and I are not on speaking terms because of my sin, then why should I feel like I'm worthy to take the Lord's Supper elements? If I have regard, love, affection towards sinful behavior in my heart, boy, right there, I need to get on my knees and I need to confess that and I need to do business with that and I need to make sure that when I approach the Lord's Supper table, there is not aught in my heart toward God. What are the qualifiers here? We see that uh, uh, Paul says to them, he says, uh, some of you are contaminated. This person must be a true believer in Jesus the Christ. Uh, this person must have their sins confessed before God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 and 38. This person must be a disciple of Christ. This language of worthy, worthy. Uh, we find Jesus used this same language about being worthy in Matthew chapter 10. 
Look at verse 37. Jesus is looking for your devotion. Jesus is looking for you to be on His team. Jesus is looking for you to pick up your cross and follow Him. Look at verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we are, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27, wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Well, God, Jesus himself told us how we make ourselves worthy to be his disciples. And we must prioritize him above all else. We must prioritize the Lord Jesus Christ even above our own families. He must be the number one person in our life. He must be uh, the one where we take up His cross and are willing to suffer in His name. This person must be a true believer in Jesus the Christ. This person must have their sins confessed before God. This person must be a disciple of Christ. This person must have their strife resolved with others. Turn over to Matthew 5. Just a few, a few pages to the left there. Matthew 5 and look at verse 23. Matthew 5 verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother have aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus says you come to a church, and you want to bring your gift to the altar, and you have a problem between you and another or brother or sister in Christ, everything else comes to a stop until you go and make an effort to resolve that difference with your brother. Everything comes to a stop. Now, let me speak to the practical side of this passage. In my 38 years of life, I have worked hard to live peaceably with all men. I stand here tonight behind this pulpit, and I, I'm willing to say this knowing that it is going to be publicly available on YouTube for the foreseeable future. Uh, people who uh, are outside of this ministry can view this and watch this. And so I say this with great intellectual honesty. If you see this and you and I are not on the best of terms, I am willing to reconcile any difference we have, no matter who you are. And my friend, you ought to have an attitude that no matter who it is, that you are making every effort to have a humble heart to reconcile your differences with those people. You're making every effort to make sure things are right between you and your brother and sister in Christ. There have been times in my 38 years of life where I've been at odds with someone, and uh, sometimes it's been my fault, sometimes it's not been my fault, but in every situation I have come to the point in my life where if need be I could sit down and make things right with that person when they are ready to do it. And that's what the Word of God requires, is there not be any ought in your heart. Uh, many years ago, I was working on a church staff, and uh, my, myself and another assistant pastor were having a very heated feud. We were not getting along well 
at all. There was uh, some pretty serious, a pretty serious division between me and this other assistant pastor. I've worked in a few churches. I've had many, many colleagues, and so uh, don't try to figure it out. Amen. And so it wasn't anybody here, wasn't anybody, anyone in this room knows. But me and this individual were not getting along, and I was, I was tasked with distributing the Lord's Supper, and we were in the middle of this great feud, and so I came to the front. And I stood there, and I had the Lord's Supper plate given to me, and we distributed the Lord's Supper. And I came back, and I'm standing at the front pew, and the pastor takes the, the, um, uh, the plate from me there with the Lord's Supper elements in front of it, and he stands there and holds it in front of me. And I just looked at him, and I said, and he moved on to the next guy. You say, why didn't you take the Lord's Supper? Because I wasn't worthy to take it. I wasn't worthy. I'm not playing around with that. I was contaminated. There was aught in my heart between me and another brother of the Lord. Now, he and I have done our best to reconcile since then and, and make things right between us. I'm not fooling around with this. I'm not playing around with this. Paul says some of you are flat careless. He says some of you come into this and you're contaminated. He says, letter C, some of you are condemned. Some of you are condemned. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 30, and these are some of the hardest hitting verses to Christians in the Bible. It says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with this world. I want to make sure I'm very careful with what I do and don't say under this point. It is quite possible that some of you here were raised in the home of a mom or dad who is an authoritarian, who um, would beat you and looked to beat you at every turn. And oftentimes when we grow up in a home like that, we get a view of God that He is the same way. I want you to understand that the heart of God, all throughout Scripture, is He's not looking for you to slip up so He can knock you over the head and kill you. That's not who God is. That's not how God operates. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, where chastening is discussed, the Bible says He does it out of love. He does it out of love. And God never looks to punish any more than He absolutely has to. When, when Paul writes to the church here and says, some of you are sickly, some of you are weak, and some of you have even died because you are abusing the Lord's Supper, what Paul is not saying is, God is looking at you with a microscope and there's one sin in your life that you missed in your confession sin. That's not what he's saying. That's not at all the tenor or tone of the passage. What Paul is saying is some of you are so reckless with this. You're living a fornicating lifestyle. Corinth had a major problem with this. One of the six rebukes offered in the book of 1 Corinthians was the, the, the looseness with sexuality in the church. It was way out of bounds. Way out of bounds. And it wasn't just that one instance with a guy and his, and his, and his stepmom. It was all through, riddled throughout the church. And Paul says, some of you are living 
wicked, wicked lifestyles. You're showing up on the Sunday of the Lord's Supper. You're having a gluttonous feast. You're downing these elements that are supposed to commemorate the death uh, and, and uh, the death of Christ, the body, the broken body, and the and the poured out blood of Christ. And God is so infuriated over your reckless behavior that He's made some of you sick, and others of you He's even brought down to the grave and killed. I I don't believe anyone here would be so abusive with the Lord's Supper elements. But I want you to understand something. When it comes to those things that symbolize the body and blood of Christ, God does not play around with that. You remember when Moses struck the rock the second time? You remember the harsh punishment that came on Moses because he was contaminating the symbolism of Jesus the rock being struck just once on the cross? God said to Moses, you're not entering the promised land because you have fooled around with the symbolism that I had laid out in Scripture. God does not fool around with those things. You remember when, when Achan stole the, the gold and the silver and, and the garments and hid them in his tent? He was contaminating the symbolism of, of Old Testament Jewish tithing and, and the first fruits going to the Lord. And, and, and God said to Achan and his family, we're not playing around with that. And the entire family was stoned and burned and a memorial was left there because the symbolism was fooled around with. Please understand that while these are arrows that point back to the cross, these are arrows that we do not worship. These are also arrows that we are to show great respect and reverence toward. We are not to fool around with the symbolism. Uh, Listen, it is very important that you take the time and that you get your heart right with God and you get accounts with your brothers and sisters in Christ right before God, before you put those elements in your mouth and partake. Number one, we see the church's rebuke. Number two, notice the Christian's remembrance. The Christian's remembrance. Uh, We come to this time because it is... A memorial, a memorial. Um, on July 4th, we will shoot off fireworks, uh, or we'll go, to fire, a show, uh, we'll go to shows where fireworks are shot off. How many of you here have ever been to the dueling fireworks show between Shelton and Derby and sat up there and watched both of them? That's pretty neat. They both go off at the same time, and you can look in the two directions and see them. You know why we shoot off fireworks? We're celebrating the fact that bombs bursted in air for our freedom as a nation. Now, uh, those fireworks memorialize the tragedies of war that brought us our freedom. Those fireworks are not bombs bursting in air. They symbolize bombs bursting in air. These Lord's Supper elements, they're not the body and blood of Christ. They symbolize the body and blood of Christ. Notice letter A. They symbolize, they they, they represent His sacrifice. His sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Look here, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink in remembrance of me. This is a sacrifice. This is a memorial. This is a remembrance of His great sacrifice. The bread represents 
Notice underneath his sacrifice represents his body. Take your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 53 in verse number 1. Isaiah 53. Look at verse number 1. Isaiah writes, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Look here, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. When I read through the gospel accounts of what they did to Jesus, and I play out in the theater of my mind how they ripped his beard from his face, How with great anger they spit in his eye. How they mocked him, his deity. They put a bag over his head, punched him in the face, prophesied and tell us who hit you. I think every time they took a swing, Jesus thought in his head the name of the man that hit him. And Jesus thought about how much he loved the individual that struck him. They marched him before Pilate as some sort of sideshow and demanded that he be crucified through political pressure. Pilate ordered him to be stripped naked and beaten with a cat of nine tails. We don't know how many licks they gave to Jesus because he was a Jewish man and the limit of 39 stripes was only for a Roman citizen. Jesus was not a Roman citizen. But we know they beat him to a place where they laid furrows in his back. Nine leather whips in one handle. History tells us there would have been shards of glass or pottery that would have torn through his skin. wove thorns together into a crown, mashed them into his skull, and blood like a crimson river ran down his face. They placed a robe on his back and a reed in his hand and bowed down to him, mocking him. They took nails and pressed them through his hands and his feet, 
piercing him. They would have historically pushed the base of that cross into a hole three or four feet deep. The jarring of the cross in the bottom of that hole would have sent every joint in his body out of place. They walked up and down in front of the cross, mocking him, challenging him to come down from the cross and save himself. Declaring, you saved others, but yourself you cannot save. They gambled for his royal robe at the base of the cross. He had healed hundreds and thousands of people only to have them run into hiding and disappear, save a few ladies and John the Apostle. His body was torn. You want to know what kind of restraint Jesus had? Angels were waiting in heaven, watching, standing on the balls of their feet, waiting for the order from the cross. They would have come down and rescued Jesus and killed all those that were crucifying Him. But Jesus knew the only way for our sin to be forgiven was for Him to take on our sin. Jesus allowed His body, His royal body, His body of deity and His body of flesh to be beaten and broken Because that was the price of sin. When we put this bread in our mouth, we are remembering the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The fact that He would be willing to do that for those who deserve to spend an eternity in hell. The fact that He would be willing to go through hell for all of humanity so that all of humanity would have the opportunity of eternal life. His body broken. What are we remembering? What are we commemorating when we partake in the elements of the Lord's Supper corporately? Well, we're remembering the sacrifice of His body, but we're also remembering the sacrifice of His blood. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me in your Bibles. When you truly understand what Jesus went through on the cross, and then you try to come to heaven with your works, I think you have a deeper understanding of how offensive it is to God that you would ever offer any set of good works to get into heaven. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 18. For as much as ye know, ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter, the prophet to the or the apostle to the Jews, knew that they knew all about a lamb without spot and blemish being brought and laid on the brazen altar and the neck being slit and the blood 
flowing over the edge of the altar and, and, and fire being set to this animal and, and hands being laid on the head and, and guilt being transferred over. He says, you were, you were not condemned by these corruptible things. You were condemned, rather, uh, you were not uh, uh, forgiven through these corruptible things. You were forgiven by the precious blood of Christ that flowed uh, from the cross for your sins. When we take in the Lord's Supper elements, we are remembering the blood of Jesus. The life-giving blood of Jesus that not only washes away our sins, but sets our account in heaven righteous with God. Letter B, we see our salvation. Not only His sacrifice, but we see our salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he'd break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, Paul is telling the church of Corinth, listen, this commemorates not only the fact that Jesus died, and not only the fact that His body was broken, and not only the fact that His blood was shed, but that you have made that personal. You have had the blood of Jesus not just washed away uh, sin generically, it's washed away your sin. Uh, It's not just the body of Jesus that's been broken generically. It was broken for your sin. He died in your place. And you have put your faith in Jesus as your great sacrifice. Our salvation. Before we move on to the third point, God knew, God knew how entitled we are. God knew how quickly and easily we forget. How many times in my own life have I gone a day, a week, a month without focusing on the great sacrifice of Jesus, only to have it on a church calendar somewhere that we're going to have the Lord's Supper and and, and to be reminded, hey, we need to set time out of our schedule so that we can go back and remember the cross of Calvary and remember the grueling, agonizing pain Jesus went through We do this so that we will remember what Jesus did for us. And that brings us to point three. Lastly, notice the Christian's requirement. The Christian's requirement. Some, I would even say many, take the approach that they would rather avoid the wrath of God. So they will avoid the Lord's Supper table altogether. This approach is not acceptable to the Lord. Look at verse number 26. 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 26. Notice there, it says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or shew the Lord's death till he come. Notice here in verse 26. Look here. Notice the assumption made by Paul is that you do eat the bread, Christian, and you do drink the cup. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you do it. 
someone says, well, I'm just going to avoid it because I don't want God to put me in the grave. Again, you misunderstand the mercy of God. You misunderstand the heartbeat of God behind this. God requires the Christian to do it. This is not something that is optional. This is something that God requires. Verse 26 is assuming that you are involved in it, Christian, and that you are doing it. This is the assumption. This is something to not, this is not something that the Christian should run from. This is something we are to embrace, but we are to be, we are to do so with a sober mind. Uh, notice this, uh, that it does not tell us how often it, it is to be done. Some churches do it once a year. Other churches do it twice a year. Other churches do it quarterly. Other churches do it bi-monthly. Some churches do it every month. Uh, the Bible does not lay out how often we are to do it. It just declares that we are to do it. The requirement is not only that you do it, but that when you do it, you hit the reset button in your life we talked about earlier. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 28. Look here, look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Notice that this is a time of self-examination. This is a time of a reset button. Hey, this is a time for me to make sure that all of my accounts with all of you here that are my brothers and sisters in Christ are all clean. And I've got no ought between me and any of you. This is a time for you to look around the church and make sure that there is not a single problem between you and a brother and sister in the Lord and that you get that straightened out. This is a reset button every time we come to the Lord's Supper table for you to make sure that there is no unconfessed sin between you and your Heavenly Father, that you are in right standing with God. When I come home from work and Matthew and April have done something wrong, uh, they don't want to see me because uh, they're not in right standing with me. And if you're not in the habit of communing with God because you know that you and God are not on speaking terms because of your behavior, that's not the time to take the Lord's Supper. You say, well, then I'll just avoid the Lord's Supper. You're missing the point. The point isn't that you avoid the Lord's Supper. The point is that you get your heart right with God and you get that account cleared and you get back into right standing with God so that you can partake of it, so that you can have examined yourself and see that you're right in right standing with God and you're in right standing with others. This is the Christian's requirement that our heart is right with God and that we do come and we do participate. Listen, when you see the Lord's Supper uh, scheduled uh, with the church calendar, do everything you can to be here. Do everything you can to partake. Do everything you can to get your heart right. Do everything you can to clear accounts with other people. Uh, leave your gift at the altar and make sure everything is right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Make every effort to do so and then come to this time uh, determined to be a disciple of Christ and partake of it worthily and partake of it not only within the letter of the law, but by the Spirit of the law. This is the Christian's requirement. This is the teaching on the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, we're going to partake of the elements, and I want all of us to take a few minutes right now and make sure our sins are confessed before God. If there's someone in this room that you have an issue with, why don't you go get them and put your arm around them right now? Why don't you get those things settled? And come, You don't have to iron out every detail, but why don't you put your arm around them and say, Brother or sister, I love you, and whatever it is, we're going to work through this together. And you can work through it later, but have a spirit of agreement on that before we partake. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed where we are. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Brother Daniel, if you'd come to the piano, I'd appreciate that. 
And uh, let's take a few minutes right where we are in our pew to make sure our hearts are right with God. And again, if you need to go to a brother and sister in Christ right now, why don't you do that? Why don't we make sure accounts are right with God and our accounts are right with others and that we're walking within the will of God. There's no sin uh, regarded in our heart. There's no iniquity regarded in our heart.